Welcome to Packets and Bolts, podcast about technology, life, philosophy, and everything in between. It is Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. This is your host, Muskrat, flying solo today as I interview James Corbett of the Corbett Report. Hope everyone out there had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know I did. No headlines or anything like that tonight, but I am sipping some hot sake. Tasty stuff. Yeah, it's one of those days. No mongoose, no dub stench. But James Corbett is probably one of the most interesting people I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. Uh, for those not familiar, uh, the CorbettReport.com. It's uh, www.CorbettReport.com. That's two T's. Link will be in the description. Uh, I was, uh, let's see, I think probably maybe seven to ten years ago was when I first uh, found his content on YouTube, although as we'll uh, get into, it's since been uh, taken down from YouTube, which is uh, one of the topics we cover. Um, but we cover a lot of uh, a lot of different things. We cover uh, tech censorship, uh, you know, shadow banning, all of those kinds of things, um, geopolitical uh, power structures, um, very interesting uh, interview that we'll be getting to in uh, just a second here. Um, for those that aren't familiar, uh, the Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source. It operates on the principle of open-source intelligence and provides podcasts, interviews, articles, and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to the Big Brother police state, uh, eugenics, geopolitics, and central banking fraud and more. This is definitely a must-listen-to interview, and we'll be getting to it um, coming up right now. All right, welcome uh, James Corbett to the uh, Packets and Bolts show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've listened to you uh, years ago, um, and I've always followed you uh, mostly on, on your uh, content on the false flag of uh, 9-11, and um, with all the recent... Um, various bouts of censorship that seems to be going on these days uh i decided to to look you up and just see what was what you're what you were up to on youtube uh where i came across the fact that you were uh basically a different channel that re-uploaded your content and then uh i think you had a, a farewell video saying you would never upload to youtube again um and that's what uh, prompted me to seek you out. I knew you were on other, uh, uh, you know, uh, media as well, but uh, YouTube is just where I would would uh, catch you in that. Like I said, um, mostly from your your nine eleven content. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, what what actually happened? Um, was it a uh, a thing where they just didn't tell you and just you disappeared, or did they actually give you strikes, or you know, you know yeah. what what happened? Yeah. Good question. And to answer that question, people can go to CorbettReport.com. Just type mission accomplished into my search bar and you'll find uh, an article that I wrote shortly after getting banned on April 11th, 2021. Mission accomplished. The Corbett Report removed from YouTube, um, which was the, uh, the, the sort of in a nutshell, just takeaway from my banning from YouTube. But I guess to put this in the context, um, it deserves. So it was 16 years ago that I started my YouTube channel. And at that time could not have possibly imagined that anyone around the world would be watching it, uh, let alone hundreds of thousands. So by the time I got banned, banned in April of 2021, I had, uh, going on 570,000 subscribers, 90 million plus video views, et cetera, et cetera. It was a, it was a pretty big channel. Um, so why did it get banned? How did it get banned? What happened? I guess 
in a sense, the story goes back to 2001 because, as you intimate there, a lot of my work for the past 16 years is uh, centered around the idea of false flags. And, of course, 9-11 was my very first topic that I ever covered on my first podcast and something I've researched deeply. Part of the strands of the research into 9-11 includes, of course, the anthrax attacks of 9-11, which mm. are, I'm sorry, of 2001, which a lot of people probably forget by now. But, oh, yeah, there was that whole anthrax <laughs> mailing thing that happened around that same time that happened right before the uh, the Patriot Act got passed in an overnight rush, mm-hmm. you know, shut down Congress for a couple of days. You know, that, that anthrax attack. So I have been interested in that for many years and talked about it, interviewed people about it, had podcasts about it, etc. And as part of the strands of that research, I have... Um, I've looked at the various parts of the infrastructure for essentially not just a homeland security state like we saw after 9-11, but a biosecurity state where they're going to be uh, mass quarantining and and force vaccinating, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the Health Emergency Powers Act that was passed in the wake of the anthrax attacks and other pieces of the uh, the executive and legislative branch passing legislation, for example, to put this into place in the United States and elsewhere around the world. So I have talked and thought about this. I've been covering, for example, from the 2009 swine flu, quote unquote, pandemic and the Zika scare in 2014, the Ebola scare, all of these different uh, health scares that have come along. So when the dreaded COVID scourge um, arrived, uh, I I I was shall we say, very well prepared for what was about to happen. And so I was immediately talking about it, flashing back to some of my earlier work. Like, for example, I did a 2000, I want to say 2009 podcast on the subject of medical martial law and basically just trying to tell people about what was happening, why it was happening, how this situation was going to be used um, to restrict people's rights, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, as I'm sure you know, that was one of the very, very, very big no-nos on YouTube. You couldn't talk about things like, oh, the 2020 selection being stolen, etc., or whatever. But, of course, one of the main things that you could not talk about was anything that contradicted whatever the CDC and or the WHO were saying that particular week. Because, as we know, it changed from week to week. Right. Well, no mask, one mask, two masks, one mask. No, paper masks don't work. Yes, they do work, etc., etc., whatever. Um, we all know the absolute, absolute craziness that went on. Anyway, I, I was absolutely not going to self-censor or shut up or just tow a party line um, in order to stay on YouTube. So uh, I did start getting the strikes and the warnings oh, wow. and all of those sorts of things. And it was a process of three strikes and you're out, um, essentially. And the third strike, funnily enough, actually came on a podcast I did uh, called Science Says, Hmm. which was literally about the philosophy of science. And I'm literally reading from Thomas Kuhn and talking about the structure of scientific revolutions, etc. But of course, I brought up people like Peter Hotez and the things that he was saying that comparing COVID dissidents to nuclear nuclear terrorists and things, just absolute insanity that we've been seeing the past few years. And that was apparently the bridge too far. That was the one that nuked my main channel. I also had a backup channel that persisted, I think, for a few months. Um, and then that one got nuked as well. But wow. then, weirdly enough, about a year later or something like that, I woke up one morning and boop, my backup channel was back up <laughs> for some reason. And I didn't get any communication whatsoever from YouTube about it. Absolutely nothing. It's just suddenly there. So I 
I said, okay, well, that's good to know. I, I'll leave it up sim simply so that my archive is there, but I'm going to put up a video just to say I am never uploading to this controlled platform ever again. If you want me, go to CorbettReport.com. And I upload to many, many, many other video um, platforms, just not YouTube. Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought that was that was very interesting, and and it's it's been getting worse. Um, are you familiar with uh, Lewis Rossman and his work? Um, I can't say it rings a bell. Okay, so he, he's into a lot of right to repair stuff, but he he works for a, a organization, Fudo, which is a uh, I guess uh, funded by a benevolent billionaire, uh, if we are to believe it. But um, the apps that I just wanted to bring up were uh, uh, Gray J and, and Harbor and uh, Polycentric, which allow uh, what their goal is, is to try to make it so that you can follow creators, regardless of the platform. So if they get banned or shadow banned, yeah. you can you can try to track them. Um, right. It is all, you know, open source. But of course, you know, it yeah, is, it is controlled. I mean, if only we had a really simple solution for that, like, I don't know, really simple syndication. Uh, if only someone would come up with, oh, wait, that already existed and was deliberately dismantled by the big tech giants over the last several years. And I know about that personally as well, because I used to use Speedburner, which used hmm. to be a really great, simple, um, it would syndicate your RSS all over the place in e very simple format so that complete noobs could just uh, click the button and sign up for your RSS, no problem. But then Google took over Feedburner, hmm. deliberately uh, destroyed it, essentially. They just didn't upgrade it, didn't update it. And then eventually I get the uh, Feedburner has been discontinued. Wow, I wonder why big tech is so against RSS. <laughs> right, one of the simplest ways to just, you know, get information sent. Um, you've seen the Canadian uh, attempt to regulate basically, I think, any, I haven't looked in the details, so I'm not sure if you have, but um, from what I, you know, what they're reporting about it, uh, if you're a podcaster, supposedly, you have to register um, these kinds of things. And, and it's very weird that the Western world uh, is, is basically turning into what we were accusing, you know, communist Russia doing in the fifties, censoring everything. No one's able to talk, um, all to control the narrative and, and, you know, prevent the spread of misinformation, which I never thought I would hear, uh, people actually seriously discussing how do you stop misinformation, which I thought in a free world, you just accepted that there's always going to be people that tell lies. And the way to solve that is to just get more information out there. Um, well, actually, actually, disinformation is telling lies. Misinformation <laughs> is simply just being wrong. <laughs> sure. So sure. now you can't even be wrong. You can't have a wrong opinion. And who gets to decide right and wrong? Oh, of course, it's the politicians and whoever's funding them in their back pocket. Yeah. Right. And, and mainstream science, which, uh, which I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, science is a method. It's not a, uh, science is not an institute. Um, it's not, you know, there is no arbiter that is, right. who is the spokesman for science, <laughs> right. political Neil, appointee. Like Neil deGrasse Tyson. No, I, I don't think so. Right. Uh, okay. Well, um, are you familiar with the Canadian, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, they're trying to get something where you have to register any of your, uh, any media, basically. Yes, I ha I, I, I'm aware of it. I haven't been following it closely. I know it did pass, and oh, I haven't okay. heard about its implementation yet. And I think the way that it is phrased is not necessarily that it's going to immediately scrub all independent podcasts off the web. But um, I, I, my understanding is that the first implementation of it is that any large-scale platform with however many users whatsoever, I, I'm not sure what the number they have embedded in the legislation is, will have to register with the government. And 
again, it's vague and open to legal interpretation. And I saw some people saying that it might even mean that various platforms would have to give user information to the government, presumably big platforms like Spotify, et cetera. But I don't know. I don't know how they're going to accomplish that. I do know that, for example, Facebook, in protest of um, laws that are going in that would make them um, essentially liable to pay news organizations to have links to those news organization stories on Facebook, mm-hmm. have actually stopped posting news content whatsoever, or stopped Canadians from posting news content to Facebook, which is crazy. Um, but just one of those things that uh, I guess the Canadian government thinks they're going to be able to regulate this problem away. And all of this, as you say, all of this is kind of baffling. If we come at it from the perspective of, well, you know, it's just governments overreacting or something like that. But actually, when you really, really, really look at the history of this, um, you see that this is not just predictable, but almost almost a certainty that in the exact sort of period of uh, time that we're living in, that these sorts of things would be taking place. And I say that advisedly because a couple of years ago, I put out a a mini documentary called The Media Matrix, where I looked at the history of mass media from really the 15th century all the way up to today. And I really do think we are living in a sort of a, what I call a Gutenberg 2.0 moment Mm -hmm. with the advent of the internet. This truly is the type of revolutionary technology that we saw there in the 15th century with um, Gutenberg's press really, truly breaking the doors down, opening the floodgates for widespread literacy. And that isn't just about the ability of people to read books, as we tend to think of it today. Um, Just the, 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 the scale and scope of the change that took place pre-Gutenberg to post-Gutenberg is difficult to for us to wrap our heads around, but some people have. For example, Elizabeth Eisenstein wrote about the uh, the, the printing press in early modern Europe um, and started to codify and talk about the various ways that utterly, completely transformed European society and then eventually, of course, global society um, with, for example, a lot of people would say that the, the Reformation um, probably would not have occurred without the printing press. At any rate, it was certainly helped along with the printing press. The Renaissance in general was helped along by the printing press. And the sort of political, widespread political ramifications of that that reverberated for centuries and and really in, in substantial ways um, led to the overthrow of monarchies like uh, the French Revolution, led to the American Revolution with the printing press being a key essential uh, part of that with uh, Thomas Paine and Common Sense, et cetera, et cetera. This has been such a fundamentally transformative um, technology that we take so completely for granted today. I think we are living through that same sort of revolution right now, today. And I think mm-hmm. the people who who know this, feel this most acutely are the people who are in positions of power in our society who are the most under threat by the potential for this new technology to unleash a neo-reformation, a neo-renaissance of people being able to communicate with each other in a relatively free fashion. Um, Because, as I point out in my my documentary, I think by the the end of the 20th century, uh, the oligopolistic, that's easy for me to say, um, (laughs) practices of the media um, oligopoly had consolidated that control over the, the printing press revolution. I think it, that revolution had finally been put back back in the bag by the fact that the technologies for widespread mass media propagation, the, the, the printing presses, the more importantly, perhaps 
radio broadcasting, television broadcasting, satellite networks were prohibitively expensive. No individual could own a satellite network, Mm -hmm. but a gigantic corporation could. So you had these handful of corporations that tended to control almost all mass media. The Internet threatened to completely blow that up and did for, I think, for a period of time. And weirdly enough, not only do we see, as, as I think is completely to be expected, um, the really the, the billionaire oligopolists and the politicians that they own are working as hard as they can to put that cat back in the bag with legislation like what we're seeing in Canada and elsewhere. But more strange, even stranger to me, is the fact that people are willingly, I think, hurting themselves back into the pen of right. a few corporations tending to own everything. I mean, you probably know, I certainly know a couple of decades ago on uh, online looked very, mm-hmm. very different than it does today. And I mean that in the most literal sense. I mean, you had those crazy, everyone had their own, uh, uh, what was it, Angel Fire or whatever yes, website yes. with the, the crazy JavaScript twirly <laughs> nonsense and weird backgrounds and yeah. what have you. But it was a lot incredibly of good unique and everyone had their own little personal space. And then what we saw was with the advent of MySpace and then Facebook and then Twitter and this complete big tech takeover of that space so that everyone now is allowed a little bit of space on some big corporation's servers, essentially. And that's where your identity now rests. Mm -hmm. It's not just centralization of content, it's centralization of identity in the hands of a few um, big tech giants that now essentially control what is happening online. And not because they have a gun to your head saying you must have a Twitter account or what have you, but because everyone just gravitates to it. Oh, it's just easier. Everyone's there. So let's all go there. And that to me is kind of the most fascinating aspect of all of this. Yeah, that, that is true. The, there was a lot of good content content and it's even scarier though, when you look at the search engines and how it's manipulated. And I started noticing this several years ago, but now pretty much Google is worthless if you're trying to do anything um, decent with it. It is attempting to push you towards any paid ad. It uh, it buries any meaningful content. You have to use uh, search ag- aggregators or, or things like that um, to really to really try to find stuff that's not in any of the major uh, systems. And then if you're looking for just general, like technical help, for instance, um, just searching Reddit is actually more helpful than, than going to Google because Google just mm-hmm. shoves ads at you. Um, yeah, uh, actually, I wanted to kind of talk on that. I, I think I mentioned to you when I was uh, asking you for the, for the interview time, um, uh, Giannis uh, Farafoukas, or I can't pronounce the name, but uh, and the techno gulag, uh, techno feudalism, and basically, in what, what you're describing is people have uh, self selected into these these pens, but the business world, um, you know, the Amazon marketplace, for instance, is what his point is. Is even in this, it's so insidious where you're going well first of all what i've you know i've worked in technology for a while so when i saw corporations because you know that everyone wants to be innovative but their idea of innovation is basically doing what everyone else does right so when um when amazon's marketplace was taking off all these corporations that had their own space wanted to still jump on amazon to sell product which i thought was a horrible idea and as you know the lawsuits that are already as you may know the lawsuits that are um monopolistic practices where they would if you had a popular product they would basically steal that and then d uh basically push you down in the search results so that they could prop their their products up but um they they control the whole environment and 
businesses even who who are supposed to know how to run their business even go towards these platforms and are completely controlled it's not a market it's not a free market at all it's a completely controlled as as he says a gulag where they get to do what they want with whatever you're putting up there and then you're paying them for the privilege of them controlling your destiny it's insane in my in my opinion and in fact, I, yeah, that's an interesting point because it brings to my mind what was the marketplace online 20, 25 years ago was not Amazon. It was eBay. Oh, and yeah. once again, that represented a, a somewhat more horizontal playing field in which it was more peer-to-peer transactions. But Amazon came along with its, um, with its corporate structure to basically consolidate and centralize that control. So now it is the central hub that everyone has to sell through. Um, rather than sort of auctions and people selling to each other. So um, absolutely, it's, again, it actually says something, I think, extremely important about the way people are, well, I I want to say fundamentally lazy, but at any rate, it (laughs) is what it is. And people will go to what is sort of the easiest option. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to learn anything. I don't have to change anything that I'm doing. I just click a button and, hey, I'll get this thing. And that's ultimately maybe the downfall of human civilization <laughs> uh, when, the, when you really start to think about it, because as, as, um, Verifakis, uh, Shoshana Zubov, others are talking about with regards to this techno feudalism, um, I call it the digital gulag. Um, what we are being led into is not just about the corporate consolidation of control and fewer and fewer hands into these gigantic, almost unimaginably massive oligopoly, um, institutions, the big tech giants, but also on top of that, we are being led further and further into what I've called the media matrix, the digital um, identity, um, which will be the core of who and what we are as we step further and further into the metaverse. However, it ultimately ends up playing out and maybe it won't be meta that will be controlling that. But at any rate, something along those lines, some real integration of this media technology with our day-to-day lives, whether that be virtual reality or augmented reality or various um, implementations of that, um, we will start to, exist more and more in this virtual space and who and how will that virtual avatar of yours be controlled? Well, we're starting to see the very, very, very thin edge of that very, very large wedge with Europe just in the past couple of weeks, starting to uh, get the ball rolling on their digital EID or whatever they're going to call it. Um, And as was immediately pointed out by some of the MEPs, the members of European Parliament who were protesting this. They were saying, well, now that it exists, they're going to have to fill it with something. And that something's probably going to be your CBDC, your central bank digital currency, which, of course, eventually will be tied into your social credit score. Your UBI payments will hinge on whether or not you've had your 18 booster or whatever the case may be. We can all imagine the ways in which that plays out in very dystopic um, fashion. So we are on, we are really on the cusp of this and it really is, uh, ultimately, I think the ultimate knife edge here is that, I, uh, the reason I think that they haven't gone full bore with the full on implementation of digital ID and CBDC and all of this, uh, it's not that the technology doesn't exist. And to some extent, it's not that even the legislative infrastructure doesn't exist. It's that the public consciousness has to be prepared for this leap we're about to take. And that's really what all of this Great Reset, Fourth Industrial Revolution, all these buzzwords that the World Economic Forum has been throwing about the past several years. That's what this is really about, um, is getting us prepared for essentially this leap off the digital cliff that we're all about to take. Well, yeah, I want... I have my doubts if that's going to succeed, but what you just mentioned, uh, digital currencies by state run, what, what do you think of um, 
cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin specifically itself? So as an uh, as an anarchist myself, I have been grav- I have gravitated to I've been covering I've been thinking about and talking about um, the cyber, uh, the cryptocurrency space since well documentably on the record uh, since 2011 I, I think was my first interview about Bitcoin and so I've I've been in the space I've I've been thinking about it talking to people involved in it and I, I, there's no doubt that the way that it was. The way that it was sold, at any rate, and the way that a lot of people perceived it in its early instantiation was this is the way around to disintermediate uh, the banking system and mm-hmm. to get rid of the central bank middlemen. We do not need them. Right. We can completely bypass that and have a completely different realm of monetary transaction that is truly peer-to-peer and has no middleman right. coming in between that can stop or or regulate any kind of exchange. And that ethos if it had played out and if people had really, really, if that had been the core of these cryptocurrency projects, I, I think that truly was a way forward, not right. the way forward as in everyone will use crypto for every transaction in all times. That would be stupid. But at any rate, uh, as a true alternative to the uh, the banking system as it exists, I think it genuinely has had and has potential. However, of course, what we saw when uh, Bitcoin started rising and people started getting into it as a form of speculation and mm-hmm. people are coming in. Oh, how much, how much, how many dollars can I make out of this right. Bitcoin, which completely <laughs> misses the point exactly. of what this, this technology is supposed to be about. And so now, of course, yes, they can regulate exchanges till mm-hmm. the cows come home because of course that is the in and out space of their controlled banking system. So of course they can control that in a million different ways. Um, and that's the way that people, So people are so fundamentally tuned into that mindset in terms of I am going to buy Bitcoin with dollars and I'm going to trade them and then I'm going to get my dollars out of this. (laughs) Right. Um, If that's your mindset, then it it really is just an adjunct of the banking system. Um, It's not actually a competitor to it. So the core idea of cryptocurrency as a peer to peer exchange, I think, is valuable. Mm -hmm. But so few people truly understand that, let alone actually work to create the, the economy that is needed to support that type of transaction. Because as I've, as I've come to learn over the years, I've been talking about monetary reform and different ways of doing this basically since the inception of the corporate report. And one thing that I, that's really struck out to me is it does not matter. It doesn't matter at all how wonderful your monetary idea is, how perfect a system you come up with. If nobody's using it, it's worthless. Right. You have to have a community that is committed to using that and developing an, a, a, a space for transactions in that currency before that currency has any meaning or relevance or value. And unfortunately, the, the truly crypto, truly peer-to-peer economy of not caring what the dollar value of a Bitcoin is, but exchanging Bitcoin directly or, or whatever, mm-hmm. Monero or whatever you know, your, right. your coin of choice is, that that economy has not developed. And without that, you know, great idea it doesn't mean anything right and and the first world had less need for a currency the unbanked more in the third world did or still does use it um a little bit more like like what it was meant to be but yeah i've gotten into many arguments with people that talk about the uselessness of crypto and all this stuff but they're always thinking about it from an investment perspective and that's really yeah. not right. what it, what the point of it was um you know, you mentioned the laziness of uh, businesses and people and all this stuff, but that's kind of a, a in my well, 
in my limited uh, history on, on Earth, I guess, seems to be a reversal of what uh, the business world used to be. The, the big, the big uh, you know, tycoons in the past worked hard to basically attempt to develop as much stuff, it seemed like, in-house as possible. But now, almost everyone wants to just pay someone else to do something so that they can do the most basic, minimal amount of effort <laughs> And I don't know where that comes from, but that seems to be what I what I see as a shift in in our whole you know just like we outsource, we put all of our manufacturing over to China. Uh, Carol Quigley and, yeah. and I think you covered this. They were they were shipping factories to to Russia before the uh, the war. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's. I don't know what, where that comes from, unless I, I was listening to one of your other shows and it seemed, you know, you were talking about the 3D chess game, unless this is just all part of their big, you know, we're going to build this country up in this era and we're going to then tear it down and bring it over somewhere else. I don't know if, if that's what you think is going on here, um, but I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that. I guess, yeah, it depends on what level of, of this game we're going to look at it from. And there is the, the two-dimensional level of nation-state versus nation-state and national interests. And I think most people most of the time are operating within that plane. And so uh, that is, it does help to describe and understand events up to a certain limit. But then you get to other aspects of this where you do look at the bigger picture and the fact that China as this great economic juggernaut didn't just arise spontaneously from, from the, the winds of the, the, uh, the Gobi Desert or something. No, it, 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 it has been built up through an economic and business and banking infrastructure that has been laid over the course of the past half century, demonstrably so. And we can look at how that happened and the capitalist rotors that came in under Deng, uh, Deng Xiaoping mm-hmm. and, uh, and the deals that were cut between China and specifically Rockefeller leading a sort of banking conglomerate, um, which laid the banking infrastructure for what was then a infl- an influx of R&D and um, a tech investment in China in the 90s. There was a lot of um, R&D centers and uh, Asian headquarters and things that were being placed in China by basically the entire Fortune 500 in the 1990s, which was odd because it, certainly at that time, China was not the economic uh, rising dragon that it is perceived perceived as today. Uh, but part of those deals cut with the Chinese government, of course, always involved technology transfer. Anything exactly. that's developed on our soil, we're going to get a hold of. And lo and behold, fast forward a few decades. And now, you know, isn't it strange that basically <laughs> all of this Chinese military uh, gear, which is so advanced and so awesome, is in very, very many cases, almost a direct copy of American military infrastructure. How on earth did all of this happen? <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, but that also extends to the economic realm where there has been a deliberate and, and uh, it's not like it's happened by happenstance or surprise. There's been a deliberate offshoring of ma- productive manufacturing capability to China in the past few decades. And wow, now they're a big economic juggernaut. <laughs> Who could have predicted it? So I, I certainly do think there is a 3D level to this in which uh, nation states are not the fundamental way that I think people in true positions of power, true, the, the, the true billionaire mm-hmm. slash trillionaire class yeah, right. question mark. I certainly don't believe the, the rich list of, uh, oh, you know, Elon Musk is the richest man on earth. So says Forbes. Uh, 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 but at any rate, the, the true 
uh, ruling power, I think, is not wedded to a particular nation state per se. It is wedded to power. And right. the question is how best to wield that in any given era of society. And I think we are uh, – we're certainly – I think it's palpable now. We are undergoing a change in certainly the American unipolar world that we have grown up in our lives at any rate. Uh, that is certainly undergoing change right now. And the question is, is it all just a bunch of willy-nilly – who knows? It's like a pinball game. Things just bouncing around just randomly. Or do you think people in positions of power with massive amounts of wealth and political capital are not trying to invest that wealth and political capital in ways that will benefit them in the long run? I sure. tend to think it's the latter, but I get called a crazy conspiracy theorist talking <laughs> well, about that. Well, yeah. So I so in, in the conspiracy world um, – you know, I, I call it, there's the, the grand unified conspiracy theorist, which I personally do not subscribe to. And that, that is, and I'm just going to define, I'm just making up these terms myself, but that is the, the view that every single thing that happened is completely planned. There are no surprises. The, the, whoever's ruling the world knows exactly what they're doing and, and the pieces are moved and this is how it goes. And, you know, World War II, et cetera. Um, I fall not that not that far, but I do think like like even Quigley was saying there was a cabal of people. He he was all all right with it. He just thought you know this is the way it is, and they attempt to do things. It sometimes backfires. I think personally, uh, Hitler went to you know like they the Hitler was definitely uh, controlled by someone, but then I I personally believe it it got out of hand, got out of their control. Some would say that everything that happened was in their control, but um, what I'm what I would pose to you, and I don't know how far you've developed your your theory on how these people operate, but some would say, even if they're looking at or trying to look at the 3D, okay, you've got this group of people. They want to move uh, manufacturing and everything because you know it's cheaper over there. Uh, they want to make more money. Um, they also want to uh, demoralize the the Americans. You know, maybe they're they're too uppity. Um, the 60s, etc., uh, got too much uh, out of hand. Um, they're going to show them who's boss. Uh, a little more poverty, et cetera, that might bring things back later. But China, Russia, wherever, um, these people, these countries, it's not a guarantee that they're going to be able to maintain the iron fist on them. They, they might get decapitated. They might get, you know, arrested. Why take the chance to do such a, an extreme shift where they could have instead gone to a South American country they had more control over or something like that? I don't know what your thoughts are on those kinds of theories. Well, I think there are a number of factors that go into something like this. And one is just historical linkages, some of which may be surprising to people. Um, I, uh, people may or may not know that the Rockefeller family, for example, has been in, heavily invested in China for a, a century, over a century now, um, yeah. has been invested in and developing um, uh, institutional relations with China for a very, very long time, for generations at this point. So, I mean, that's one example that you could point to. It wasn't David Rockefeller. Well, in fact, people say it was Nixon that, mm -hmm, you know, yep. that built the bridge to China. But actually it was Kissinger who went in a secret meeting the year before to basically work everything out before Nixon dared um, that rapprochement. <laughs> and who was Kissinger literally working for at that time? It was David Rockefeller. Mm. But it wasn't even it wasn't even David Rockefeller that was really um, doing this. I mean, his his father, um, uh, John D. Uh, Jr., uh, at the very least, was actively involved in uh, China setting up medical institutions and other such things over there. So there's a long history there. But how about the fact that Mao was a Yaley? I think a lot of people don't know that Mao Zedong was actually running a, uh, a student newspaper in on uh, Yale in China. Um, 
that was literally uh, before he uh, even was involved in the the revolution or what have you, basically pushing communist Chinese in the literal Yale in China student rag. He was the editor of, I mean, just craziness like that, that there's some interesting historical linkages that go back a long time. But I think the real, the real point of this is, as I say, I think it is people, the people understand that the various power players at any, in any given transaction are going to be motivated by money. But, when you really step back and you realize that the banking system itself is founded, for example, on the, the, the central banks, which are, I won't say printing money out of nothing. Generally, <laughs> they're printing money out of people's promise to pay them back with their labor over periods of decades when we look at the mortgage traps and other things that people fall into. But at any rate, um, the, the, the money that they print up is just largely a fiction that we all believe in and yeah, thus right. has value. Right. Um, but from that perspective, I mean – after your first few billion or few tens of billions or hundreds of billions or however much you've accrued, do you think that money is the key motivating factor for these individuals? I, I would say not. No, it's not money. It's what money is the, the points on the scoreboard, but the game is for power mm-hmm. and control. And I think once we start to put it in that perspective, you start to see how, um, again, people's People's ability to understand what is happening here is limited by the sort of ideological framework that we have. So people think it's about nation state versus nation state, or at best, they think it's about ideology like capitalism versus communism. But not really. I think it's about just different ways of managing essentially the, the tax cattle um, that from the, the larger perspective, we all are. We're just we're just tax cattle on this or that plantation. How best to manage them? How best to keep them in line? And there are various um, uh, uh, governing ideologies behind that. One of which, um, which is, I think, truly, truly interesting and truly informative in a way that the sort of the, the capitalism, communism, or other sorts of ideologies that were given uh, is not so uh, informative. Is technocracy, which is uh, a, a, a political slash economic idea that was developed in the 1920s, 1930s, um, that had a genuine political movement in, in America and in Canada and um, had global ambitions. Um, but the actual uh, historical technocracy movement has, well, it still actually exists, but um, there's very, very few card-carrying members at this point. But the concept of technocracy, I think, is a governing concept that is being actively pursued and helps to explain, um, for example, some of the interest in China. Um, China, fundamentally, is not communist, or at least not in any sort of Marxist sense, mm-hmm. maybe in some kind of Maoist sense, but even then, it's not really communist in that sense. It is tech, It is a technocracy. It's technocratic. Mm-hmm. And by which uh, people can understand that on a number of levels. One way in which that term is used is simply to mean um, rule by by technocrats, by, by people of technical efficiency or proficiency, mm-hmm. scientists and engineers and economists and what have you. But that isn't, I think, the fundamental concept of technocracy. Technocracy is a social slash political slash economic organization. <clears throat> and in its original formulation, um, which was wor- worked on by a, a charlatan named Howard Scott and someone named M. King Hubbard, who you hmm. might know from Hubbard's Peak, a.k.a. Peak Oil. Hmm. Um, he was a, a petroleum geologist, um, but he was uh, the sort of the co-founder of Technocracy Inc., which is the... the, the what, the political movement was in the 1930s. Um, but their idea was essentially for a resource-based economy. Um, money, that's 
that's a stupid, outdated concept. No, what we need to do is we need the technocrats to become the rulers, essentially, of the technate, not countries. It's going to be a technate. And they will be able to calculate, perfectly calculate. Because, of course, in the 1930s, everyone is concerned about the Depression and uh, the rise of fascism and communism and all this craziness going on. People are looking for some stability. And what is causing this? Oh, the complete failure of capitalism, the big boom-bust cycle. We're, we're in the final end of capitalism here. We need some sort of stability. So the technocratic solution was we're going to have the technocrats, the engineers, scientists, economists, perfectly calculate exactly how much energy we need um, to produce in order to produce all of the goods that we need in our economy. And once we perfectly balance the energy inputs and outputs and get all of that smoothed out, there will be no more boom bust. It will be a perfectly um, ordered society hmm. and we'll, we'll eliminate all this craziness that you're seeing. And of course, you can see how that would be appealing to people in the, the turmoil of the 1930s. But at any rate, um, that fundamental concept remains. And what part of their idea was we're going to get rid of this money idea and we're going to replace it with energy credits. Because, again, the technic technocrats will be able to calculate exactly how much energy we need. And they will be able to then take that energy, however many megajoules or whatever it is that will be required for our economy to, to function. And they will divvy it up amongst the population. And everyone will get a, a, a monthly, weekly, who knows, stipend from the government in the form of energy credits. And you will use those energy credits to go and buy goods. And goods will be measured in terms of the energy it takes to produce them, etc. Mm. And that was the solution going forward. And what are we starting to see right now is all of the pieces of that, that sort of crazy idea. I mean, it's hard to even imagine how crazy an idea that was in the 1930s because it involved tabulating everything being bought and sold in the economy in real time, making all these calculations in some sort of centralized way and, and managing all of this. Back in the 1930s, that was absolute pie-in-the-sky lunacy. In 2023, we, hey, that's, that's kind of possible. We could do that. We, have, we certainly have the, the, the computing power to be able to keep track of every transaction. If, if only we could make sure it was all digital and we could you know, <laughs> control it all perfectly. And Oh, uh, where have I heard of this idea of, you know, the government issuing weekly or monthly checks? Oh, the UBI, mm -hmm. which, of course, could be tied into a social credit. And, and, you know, maybe it won't be in the form of, of of dollars. Maybe we'll have carbon credits and carbon rationing in the future. Hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe this idea is coming from someplace. And when we put in that perspective, we start to see that China is a a technocracy in, in action. It is uh, a, a technate um, that is ruled by this clique of um, would-be economists, etc. cetera. Um, um, people like uh, Li Qicheng, um, vice premier, who at, at one point many years ago, when I, I believe, I can't remember which position he was occupying in the CCP hierarchy at that time, but he, he admitted um, privately to, I, uh, I can't remember the, the, it was leaked in the WikiLeaks um, um, dipl diplomatic cables, but he he admitted privately, "Do not trust the Chinese GDP numbers. They're I mean they're pie in the sky fantasy nonsense. No, if you really want to calculate our economic productivity, you've got to look at um, freight shipping um, volume and this energy uh, production, blah blah blah." And he had all the numbers of what you ne really need to understand. But they are they are essentially trying to order and manage an economy. Um, from a technocratic perspective. And I think that is what appeals to mm. the technocrats in America and England and France and everywhere else. 
um, as evidenced, for example, by David Rockefeller's ode to Mao upon his death um, that was published in the New York Times, I believe 1973, um, uh, uh, from a China traveler, and in which Rockefeller praised Mao's greatly forward as um, the greatest social experiment that's ever taken place. Well, what kind of social experiment was that exactly? It was essentially the crucible towards forming a more perfectly controlled society. And so isn't it interesting? And this is what I want people to really consciously keep in mind as they, as they go forward from here. Isn't it interesting? Of course we hate those chai, chai comms. They're the enemy. We're against them. And look at the horrible things that they do to their population. But you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that to our population? And you are going to, you, you are already seeing that type of interesting re- reverse propaganda in a way. You're going to see more of it in the future. And I definitely saw it in the past few years with the, oh my God, look at what China is doing, literally boarding people in their, their apartments so that they mm-hmm. can't leave. And, and all of this digital infrastructure for you can't get past your, you know, the, the end of your front, your street, because uh, you need your QR code. And all of this starts to be implemented in the West because, hey, actually, you know, it seems to be working. This is a great way of. So it's a it's a very strange thing that doesn't make sense from sort of the 2D nation state level. But when you start to look at it as these are various essentially cattle herders who are trying to more effectively manage their tax cattle. Hmm. Once we put in that framework, we start to see, oh, they're 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 swapping ideas at the top level at the very least if not actively forwarding these systems of control in various countries as essentially social experiments like what david rockefeller praised well okay and i can i can go along with some of that but the couple things are well one i don't think personally it's going to work i think at some point the people are going to have enough at least in the western world um but second where do you think the actual people that are in control are and what prevents some, you know, rowdy government uh, taking control and, and really just uh, putting them in their place? Well, I, I, I agree with you fundamentally that this is not the grand unified conspiracy theory that every single per- there is one smoky room and every person <laughs> gets a script and they have to follow that script. Uh, I, I, that's comic book nonsense. It does not work that way. And I would never suggest that. I think there are competing factions and cliques even amongst the power hierarchy. Um, clearly, we, we've had the demonstration over the past few years that it is not nation, national governments that are in total control. Mm-hmm. Um, they are receiving marching orders from World Health Organization or World Economic Forum or these institutions and bodies that you barely even hear about and don't know much about. But suddenly they start, if not dictating, certainly not directly dictating, but they set these guidelines and policies on international frameworks and regulations and National governments just go along with them, and they all seem to go along around the same time with the same sorts of ideas. So you get um, the Netherlands and Canada and Sri Lanka and all of these completely unrelated governments starting to pass the same sorts of restrictions on nitrogen and farming and things like this. Oh, it's just because we're we're in accord with the UNFCCC, and uh, we're part of the Conference of the Parties that is uh, governing that uh, that framework convention, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's interesting how that works, but. As I say, I think there are competing factions and cliques and um, people are, I'm sure, stabbing each other in the back all the time and vying for control even amongst the upper echelons of this power hierarchy. I think they and, – and so that certainly does mean that there's nothing to guarantee that any given 
country or any particular political leader couldn't, quote unquote, go rogue and start doing something that isn't part of, quote unquote, the plan. Um, but I think the fundamental defining principle of all of this generally tends to be money. And mm. when we look, certainly when we look historically, um, we can see um, the ways that uh, uh, financing has been the key um, to essentially any sort of ultimate political authority. And we can see that from the inception of central banking back hundreds of years ago, uh, which came into existence, uh, certainly, for example, in the Bank of England context, as a way of funding the, the king's uh, ability to f- fight France uh, in wars. He couldn't fund it anymore, so he created the Bank of England, which granted them a charter, which allowed these bankers, putting up very little capital, to uh, mint the coin of the realm and then to lend that to the king, which is a great gig if you can get it. And I think essentially it has worked that way ever since. So fundamentally, this comes back down to the monetary um, power, and I think that's where we have to understand where the fundamental power lies. And uh, as you alluded to earlier, I think people like, like Hitler and others are certainly don't just spontaneously arise and and do everything for themselves. No, they are funded. And uh, uh, taking a look at the Reichsbank and how that played into the international um, financial infrastructure of leading up of the 20s and 30s, leading up to World War II, the, the, the economic side of all of that, I think is incredibly important and off, often neglected when it comes to looking at world um, events like that. And I think similarly, we could see, I mean, if, for example, a Xi Jinping was completely off script and was truly a, a fundamental threat and menace to this, not, not any particular nation state, but the fundamental global system of control, I think he could be adequately contained um, pretty quickly um, with regards to the, the monetary um, cutting off of that financial infrastructure, which, which creates, for example, here's a great example of that. So we have seen uh, SWIFT become a, a sort of thing that, the average person at least may have heard of the swift banking network, which mm-hmm. is the international system for banks um, to send money to uh, across borders, essentially how do banks talk to each other across borders, etc. There is a swift network, which communicates these transactions in a standardized way so that uh, banks around the world can hook into this network and basically um, settle across borders. Okay, great. So that's part of the settlement mechanism that banks use to uh, allow international trade. And it's always been this, Oh, it's a private entity. It has nothing to do with politics. It's not political in any way until, what was it, 2011, 2012, when the U.S. basically pressured SWIFT to delist Iran and various Iranian banks, mm. and they did. So, of course, it is a political entity, of course. Um, and we saw, we've certainly seen the threats coming for Russia and China, etc. And, of course, after the Ukraine uh, invasion, we saw r- various Russian banks getting delisted from SWIFT. But don't worry, guys. Because China's been working on this for years. They've got their own CIPS, China Interbank Payment System, I believe, um, which they've been working on for years, this infrastructure for subverting this this system mm-hmm. of Western economic control. Don't worry, guys. We've got it. But asterisk, read the very small fine print. The, the CIPS network, at least from its inception, literally runs on the SWIFT network. They lease space on the SWIFT network in order to make their transaction um, uh, information flow. So, <laughs> I mean, whoa, there's your big, there's your big runaround. Um, uh, at any rate, uh, fundamentally, I think this comes down to uh, a sort of, the, that's the ultimate control mechanism here is the, the monetary financial space of this. And so I think that's where we at least would more fruitfully look if we were looking for um, who's at the top of this hierarchy. 
But as I say, I don't think it's a single plan by a single sure. person or a single group that controls everything. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't mean to uh, infer that you thought that. Um, just whenever the topic of conspiracies, I know that there's some people that think that. Um, now, I, I personally think the the attempt of America and the other you know Western powers to weaponize the monetary system, I think, is actually leading to us losing um, a lot of control in things. I mean, we, we're basically, and again, maybe this is on the 2d chessboard instead of the 3d, but it seems like we're basically a laughing stock. Now we, we can slam our fist, we can bomb a bunch of stuff, but no one really pays attention to anything we actually want anymore, unless we start dropping bombs. Um, we've kind of lost a lot of that, uh, clout that we used to have from, you know, the, uh, well, after world war two, basically. In my, in, from what I'm seeing. Yes, absolutely. And, and again, this, I think, again, we have to position this in its historical context. So the, one of the end results of World War I was the League of Nations, which we saw function for a while and sort of fall apart. It never ultimately got ratified in, by the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it didn't function the way it was, it was supposed to and ultimately became a laughingstock and fell apart with uh, Japan and others basically flouting it in the 1930s and obviously didn't prevent World War II. So we got to do something better this time, guys. And <laughs> so the result of World War II was the United Nations, which actually came out of planning meetings that were taking place uh, in the Council on Foreign Relations as an advisory body to the U.S. government uh, in the course of the war. I think they started in 41, 42. At any rate, I will I will have much more to say about that in in future documentaries I'm working on. But at any rate, um, the United Nations, ultimately end result of World War II, and has functioned for decades as this quasi, not really global governmental body, but certainly global institutions of various sorts um, from, for example, that aforementioned UNFCCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, to the World Health Organization, to all sorts of treaties, conventions, regulations, and as I wrote about very recently on CorporateReport.com, I, I had a, um, a, a an, an analysis of the conference of the parties mechanism as a type of quasi-global governmental um, system of control on various jurisdictions. And for people who don't know about this, these various framework conventions, agreements, treaties, etc., generally have a conference of the parties, so-called, which is everyone who is party signature to this agreement will come together on a yearly basis or whatever they decide and will essentially um, set rules or regulations or limits or h- how can people be living up to this. So, of course, we're about to see COP28 taking place, um, I believe, in is it Dubai, where they're about to descend um, with their annual conclave to um, talk about how they're you know, going to limit meat eating mm. in order to save the world or whatever uh, garbage nonsense yeah. they're going to shove down our throat or take out our throat anyway. Um, but anyway, that is this, this whole infrastructure for this quasi global governmental mechanism. And as I say, it's never that the world health organization says something and then every country is thereby legally mandated to do it necessarily right away. But at any rate, given say the international health regulations that exist help to explain why when the WHO declares a PHEIC, a public health emergency of international concern, which is part of this international health regulations, which every single WHO signatory is party to, which is basically every nation on earth, it might explain why when the WHO starts um, giving these various recommendations and guidelines that every single national government's um, authority, the CDC for in the U.S., for example, falls into line and lockstep with it. 
and starts um, sh- shutting down and locking down and masking and all of these other things. How does this happen? There is no global government. There's just this these agreements and these uh, these various bodies that have been set up. Anyway, the point is, World War One, League of Nations, and eh, didn't really work. World War Two, United Nations, well, it kind of works. World War Three, well, can you imagine what body will be set up in the wake of that? And when we start thinking of it in those terms, I think that puts into perspective what we have seen over the course of the past twenty years. Again, if we can get out of the mindset that the people in in positions of power and authority are solely and simply interested in the United States of America and its ability to wield its might on the global stage. If there was, for example, the sense that, hey, maybe we could have a type of conflict which resulted in a more uh, a global government with actual teeth this time, hmm. then there may be a more uh, long term strategy to essentially deplete the United States, the, 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 the next world order cannot form until the current world order is destroyed. So what better way to form a new world order than to destroy the current world order? And what better way to do that than to lead people along with the, hey, you know, this is in America's interest. That's why we're going into Afghanistan. That's why we're going into Iraq. That's why we're dropping bombs on Syria. That's why we're getting involved in this proxy war with Russia. That's why we're spent literally, oops. Six billion dollars extra to Ukraine. Oops, we didn't even mean to do that, but you can have it anyways. Whereas people in Lahaina, too bad for you. You get seven hundred dollars, and you know, so long, good luck. Exactly. You know that that kind of maneuver does not make sense if the people in charge truly care about America first. They do not. So what do they care about? They care about power. They care about control. Yes, yes. I think I think you're on to something there. Uh, we we have covered a lot of topics. Uh, I didn't even get into talking about how uh, um, we don't even, as a nation, don't even seem to be able to um, do almost anything. It, we we're pretty much paralyzed by our ineffective uh, governance and and everything else that's going on. And and other uh, nations that are up and coming are way more agile, uh, etc. But um, you know, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour here or the bottom, whichever way you look at it. Um, any last thoughts that you wanted to cover real quick? I know we covered a lot of topics. We covered an awful lot. And as you say, we barely scraped the surface. Anyway, I have been talking about this stuff for 16 years now. There are literally thousands and thousands of hours of media on CorporateReport.com, completely 100% totally for free. So if people in your audience haven't heard it before, I hope they'll check it out. Um, it is meant as a resource and I, I have tried to document. I try my level best to document what I'm saying. I don't talk out of my posterior, or at least when I do, I try to make it clear that I'm talking out of my posterior and speculating. But I have a lot of information there with a lot of, and I always try to hyperlink all of my sources. That, that has been the key part of the Corbett Report. It's tagline, open source intelligence news since day one. That's been the tagline of the website. So at any rate, it's all there at CorbettReport.com. I hope people check it out. Definitely. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. That was James Corbett of The Corbett Report. Remember, check out his show at CorbettReport.com. And as always, as the chimes tell us, remember to keep packing those bolts. Until next time, see ya. Real goat. Ah!